And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to this holiday edition of the uh, Real Investment Show. Yes, it's Juneteenth. Markets are closed today, but um, we're actually having a two-hour show today. Uh, actually, this whole week we'll be doing two hours for you. Now, before you panic and go, oh my God, two hours. Uh, the last hour, we're going to take live questions and phone calls. So, um, you know, save your questions. So if you have questions during the show, whatever you think of, just jot them down on a piece of paper so you don't forget because we're all getting older now. <laughs> An hour's retention is hard to do. Um, but uh, from the, the second hour of the show, we'll answer your questions live. So whatever you have, just hang on to them. Uh, we'll be monitoring our YouTube channel as well, so you can put your question on YouTube. Again, wait until the next hour to put your questions on YouTube, because by the time we get there, it'll be so far down the run, we'll, you know, because y'all are chatty on YouTube. I mean, Y'all talk about the most inane stuff on YouTube, but hey, you know what? It's all good. We appreciate it. Anyway, a uh, couple of things this week, of course, coming off uh, you know, an, uh, a continued rally in the markets over the last, really, uh, several months. Uh, you know, we've had a huge gain in the market this year, and this is now starting to improve consumer confidence. The University of Michigan Consumer Confidence Index has been rising now for the last couple of months as consumers are becoming more confident about the outlook for the future, right? And now, now this is partly problematic for the Federal Reserve. Again, the whole point of what the Federal Reserve wanted to do by hiking interest rates was to, to quell consumer confidence so they would contract spending and that would help bring down inflationary pressures within the economy. But while consumer confidence did fall last year along with the market and everything else, um, the rally this year has started to improve consumer confidence. And this isn't surprising considering that, you know, pe uh, baby boomers in general and Gen X in general have about 60, about 65 percent of Gen Xers have money invested in the stock market. And so, again, the kind of the rise in the and this is all, this was the premise of Ben Bernanke back in 2010 when he first launched the second round of quantitative easing, he specifically said the reason that we're doing QE is to boost consumer confidence, which will translate into stronger economic activity. That's right, because when you feel better about the economy, you're apt to go spend some more money, right? Take a vacation, go buy a new car, whatever it is. The problem for the Federal Reserve is, is that stronger consumer spending is going to help pressure or keep inflationary pressures elevated. So uh, again, one of the things that the Fed had wanted was to bring prices of the stock market down uh, by hiking interest rates, but that really hasn't been working this year. Again, this whole flood into anything related to AI has certainly been uh, boosting the markets. In fact, um, the top seven stocks, we've talked about this before, that when you look at those top seven mega cap stocks as a percentage of the overall market, we're now approaching back to the peak that we saw in January of 2022. So their weight in the index is near an all-time high. The question is, can it keep getting bigger? I mean, can eventually the seven stocks just be the index? At the rate they're going, probably. But um, again, markets uh, are very extended, very overbought here in the short term. And as we talked about in this weekend's newsletter, um, a correction is coming, right? So a correction is coming. 
And this is going to be, this will be good. This will be an opportunity to kind of get some money invested to the markets if you haven't been able to do so just yet. Um, you know, this rally has a tremendous number of, of supports directly below where we're sitting. You've got the 20-day moving average, the 100-day, the 50-day, the 200-day. So a tremendous amount of support uh, in the market for this market to pull back to uh, kind of contract a bit, consolidate and work off some of this more extreme overbought condition. Now those, uh, again, markets are closed today. So good news for today is markets won't do anything. <laughs> so you don't have to worry about today, but tomorrow, uh, different story here. Um, but we are gonna get a pullback here. Now, whether it's this week or next week or the week after, who knows? Um, most likely, uh, given that we just got through quadruple witching on Friday, um, we've got end of the quarter rebalancing. Now, if, if I'm a portfolio manager and I'm running a 70, 30, 80, 20, 60, 40 allocation, whatever my portfolio is, and it's a mutual fund, then I've got to rebalance that portfolio back to weight when I issue out my quarterly statements where I have kind of end of the quarter rebalancing, also end of the quarter uh, window dressing. So two th there's kind of two competing forces as we go into the end of the quarter. So one side of the coin says equities are now 65% of my portfolio and, and bonds are 35%. So I've got to rebalance those. I've got to sell some stocks to buy some bonds. So that's potentially going to lead to some downside pressure theoretically in markets when we go through that rebalancing. And there's a good bit of rebalancing that needs to be done. The competing pressure for that, though, is, is that you've got a lot of mutual fund managers going into the quarter that are not heavily long all these AI stocks. So there's going to be a potential push here to add weight to some of these AI-related stocks. So at one point, you've got a group of managers that have to reduce equity. At the same time, though, they're going to have to shift some of that equity exposure into these stocks. So yes, they may be, there may be selling pressure in the markets, but there may be buying pressure in those AI-related stock-specific areas. So again, a very, it'll be a broader rotation. Markets could correct on the overall surface, but some of these AI stocks may not correct as much as you might be expecting here uh, because of that rebalancing. We'll see what happens, but this is, this is that kind of end of the quarter thing that we run into. So uh, again, that's coming up. We're also about to jump right back into earnings season. We just got through earnings. It just seems like we just finished earnings season. Uh, that's going to kick off here right at the beginning of July. So again, you know, there's going to be a lot of pressures on various areas of the markets over the next couple of months that could lead to a bit of a pullback. If earnings don't come in as strong as everybody's expecting right now, that could lead to some disappointment in stocks. So again, lots of things to certainly be concerned about, but a deep market correction because of recession, that's getting pushed out much further. Uh, in fact, fears, you know, the kind of the expectations for the onset of recession are now well into 2024. And there's a rising contingent of analysts that expect no recession at all within the next 18 months. Um, and this is because of these improving underlying issues, right? If, if consumer confidence is improving, typically that leads a trough in economic activity. Again, if consumers feel better about their situation, what are they going to do? They're going to go buy stuff. So if they start buying stuff, you're going to start seeing economic indicators improve off these lows, particularly things like leading economic indicators, the manufacturing indexes, et cetera, should start to bottom here along with consumer confidence. And that's going to help push out that fear of recession even further. So uh, that should also translate theoretically 
uh, within the next couple of quarters into more stable earnings for companies. Again, if consumers do follow through with this improve, if, they, if they're feeling more confident and their expectations of rising stock prices, which are uh, over the next year are rising, which they are, that should lead to a, an improvement in some of this economic data. That's going to be frustrating for a lot of people that have been betting heavily on this recession idea occurring. Um, when you start to see that data trough and start to turn up, that's going to push that recession fear further out. And, and so this is going to be that dichotomy that we're dealing with. You know, the, as we talked about before, the market tends to lead the economic data because it's a function of psychology, right? It's, it's, a, it's a function of confidence. It leads improvements in the economy because it, it, it is a coincident indicator of improving confidence. So this is, this is the challenge that we face as investors. Anyway, lots of stuff to get into this morning. I know it's a holiday for you, but when we come back from the break, we'll get into that. And remember, at the top of the hour, we'll start taking your calls and uh, questions right here live on the show as well. So stick around. More of The Real Investment Show coming right up. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Oh, Red, I declare I plum missed that candy coffee. Whatever am I going to do? Don't you worry, little darling. We'll watch it again on our YouTube channel. Why, Red? I never. The Real Investment Show YouTube channel has all of our past presentations from Candid Coffee and Lunch and Learn to special topic discussions and all of our live show recordings preserved for you. Subscribe now to the Real Investment Show YouTube channel or look for the link on our website at realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. So uh, if you live in Texas, um, it's been hot as, as lately. And I was driving in this morning and they had the uh, news person on and they're talking about and they had the, the weather person come on. I guess you can't call them weather ladies, weather woman anymore. There was a female. Anyway. Um, Never can tell. Yeah. But no, that's true. Um, anyway, so came on to talk about the heat and she's and and she said we have an extreme heat warning in texas and it'll end in a, in a couple of days it'll cool off we'll be in the in the in below 100 uh later this week first of all we're just preheating right we're just getting ready for august it's right around the corner so uh texas definitely started to heat up but i can guarantee you that they're right because i went running this weekend and you know this is the time of the year to get out and run outside and and it was it was hot <laughs> you know i got back from running and and it looked like literally i had just gotten out of the swimming pool it was just it was just drenching hot but you know it's just again it's going to be hot here in texas for the next you know couple of days but it is supposed to we're supposed to get a little cooling break over the next couple of days so but the one good thing about this at least you can guarantee nobody's gonna be waiting in the back seat of your car to kill you so this will be <laughs> there's that <laughs> there is that <laughs> It's one of those things like, why didn't you roll the windows down for him? <laughs> so, um, all right, a couple of things. Um, uh, oh, there's a new Alzheimer blockbuster drug that's coming out. I just can't remember when. So, 
one of the things. <laughs> just let that one lie there. <laughs> you don't have to fill in for jokes. You no, can just let no, them go. It's yeah. okay. Just it's all right. Don't help. You're that person at the party that tells the punchline to jokes when somebody's trying to tell a joke. I forgot. Just, exactly. <laughs> just gee. stand over there and produce. That's all your job is. Do your job. <laughs> all right. As I was saying before, um, you know, one of the things about this market is that as opposed to when I was growing up, you know, when, when I was growing up, there was a gentleman that lived down the street and he was the only guy in the neighborhood that got the wall street journal and you would see him walk down you know he'd, he'd come out of his house in the morning and he'd walk down to the end of the the driveway in a pair of house you know house shoes and a robe and he'd pick up his wall street journal walk back into his house and and he was the rich guy in the neighborhood and he he was the one that had a stockbroker, and it was kind of a thing of awe back then. You know, growing is like, wow, he has a stockbroker. But he was investing in stocks. But that was a rarity, right? Um, I grew up in a small town, so uh, you know, it was it was particularly notable if somebody was investing in the stock market back then. But it's a very different attitude. Um, you know, you get the Wall Street Journal, and you're looking at data that's two or three days old in some cases. Um, on earnings or whatever's going on in the market. So, you know, General Electric will come out and they would beat earnings by a penny or miss earnings by a penny. Nobody cared, right? It's like, okay, it, because that wasn't that important. Were earnings growing, right? Um, were they heading in the right direction? How was the profitability of the company? Those were the things that mattered back then. The average holding period for stock back in the 70s and 80s was about six years, on average. So fast forward to today, a couple of generations later, and we now have everything online and everything is immediate. And we have news flow that impacts us in our decision making on a moment by moment, second by second basis. And I was actually talking about this this weekend at a podcast. And, you know, if you want to be a better investor, turn all that stuff off during the day in the heat of the moment when the markets are open if you want to be a better investor focus on the balance sheets the income statements focus on your discipline focus on your strategy turn all the new stuff off during the day what happens from one moment to the next you know during the trading day has means nothing for a company long term if you're investing if you're truly a long-term investor and you're buying value and you're buying companies that are performing over the long term what happens today or tomorrow is irrelevant now if you're day trading that's all that matters none of the other stuff matters. it doesn't matter whether the company even makes money or not it doesn't matter if you're day trading stock because all you're trading is is the news flow right stocks up today because of a piece of news stocks down tomorrow because, and, or you're just trading price data that's all that matters fundamentals don't matter if you're day trading stocks you just trade the momentum and the price action. So it's all about technicals. But if you are truly investing, what happens during the day is irrelevant. So turn it off. You know, if you're checking your portfolio more than once a month, you're really hurting yourself because you're going to be making decisions on short-term price movements that has nothing to do with long-term outcomes of your stock. 
But this is what the market has trained us to do. This is what we've been taught to do over the course of the last two decades because of this invention and integration of the internet into the financial world. And so now we're, we're checking our portfolio every day. Why? All it's doing is it's not making you any wealthier or poor. It's just <laughs> raising your anxiety and giving you more stress. So why do you check it every day? When you get your statement, that's when you check it. And that's hard to fathom, but you'll, be, but you'll truly be a better investor over time because you won't be so ratcheted to these daily price movements that ultimately may mean nothing to the long-term profitability of a particular position. But it's challenging. But I thought it was interesting because there was a, <clears throat> excuse me, there was a article in the Wall Street Journal called Boomers Got Hooked on Stocks. When it comes to investing, older Americans can't quit their stock market habit. I can't quit you. Um, nearly two-thirds of U.S. adults aged 65 or older own equity through individual stocks, mutual funds, or retirement savings accounts, according to an April survey by Gallup. That is up from roughly 50% of Americans in the same age cohort before the 2008 financial crisis, and it's the only age group to see stock ownership rates rise over that period. So, you know, again, this is when we were, as we were talking about at the beginning of the show, this is why Ben Bernanke and, and others have talked about the relationship between the stock market and consumer confidence. So many boomers now, Gen Xers as well, have exposure to stocks that the movements of the markets dictate and reflect spending habits. The stock market's doing well. I'm more confident because my portfolio value is up, so I can, I can splurge. I can go buy that new vehicle, or I can go take this trip, or I can do this because my, the, the improvement in the value of my wealth offsets the cost that I'm going to expend on these particular issues, whatever it is, whatever I want to spend my money on. If the markets are down, I cut spending. Because I'm losing wealth, so I don't want to go spend money because the value of my portfolios are down. That's how it works. That's why, if you take a look at leading economic indicators, as an example, the stock market makes up part of the leading economic index because of the relationship between the market and consumer behavior. Why is that important, Bill? Because, as we've talked about before, 70% of economic activity is driven, well, not exactly 70, but it's like 68 point something, um, but pretty close to 70% of economic activity is driven by what? Personal consumption. What we're doing, retail sales, buying houses, all that stuff. All the stuff that we do as consumers, that's what drives the economy. We're a consumer-driven economy, so the reflection and the impact of what happens in the financial markets has a very big weight about what happens within the economy. So the improving market this year, and this is going to be the hard part, as we, as we were talking about at the beginning of the show, there's a lot of people still, they're like, this doesn't make any sense. The markets are going up. We're definitely going to have this recession because of higher interest rates. Maybe. There's certainly a lot of historical precedent that says that a five and a quarter percent if, if the fed hikes next month which there's a rising probability of little hike rates in july so if a five and a quarter percent rate hike 
historically, especially at the aggressive speed that the Fed used over the last year, has always led to a recessionary outcome. And, and so we're all sitting around going, hey, you're going to have a recession. Certainly makes sense, right? Leading economic indicators, economic data, all of it, yield, inverted yield curves, all point to a recession within the economy. But all of a sudden, the head scratcher becomes that the economic data begins to improve. You've had a very deep decline in economic data. And you've had economic data declining now for an extended period of time. I mean, we're, we're, we're starting to push in towards 18 months of this market that we've been talking about. You know, last January, not this past January, a year ago January, was when all this started. In March, the Fed hiked rates for the first time. So we're well past a year from the first rate hike. We're 18 months past the peak of the market, and we're over a year in terms of substantially weaker economic data. It's been a while. That will end for a variety of reasons. Consumer confidence may be suggesting that we're near a trough in that economic data than not. And why? Blame it on the boomers. Be right back after the break. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com and welcome back to the show this morning so um if you're watching the show coming up at well it's 6 30 here depending on where you are in the country. But coming up the top of the hour, um, we're going to be taking your live questions and, and comments here. So uh, either on our YouTube channel, so if you go to The Real Investment Show on YouTube, uh, you can tune in there and put your question into live. Don't do it yet because at 30 more minutes before we get to taking questions, it'll be too far down the list. I won't see it. Um, or we're going to give you a number to call. And you can actually call in live to the studio and we can have a conversation about your question. And so we will do all that at the top of the hour. So save your questions, get top of that. James says that uh, I'm not very good at accepting help, particularly when I don't think I need it. And that's a very true statement. I don't need help. <laughs> if I can't figure it out, I just don't do it. <laughs> It's a personal challenge. It's just that's just the way it is. Anyway, I'm not sure why he thinks I need help. Of course, my wife has been saying that for years. Every time she looks at me, she just shakes her head. She says, "You need help." 
Probably not. Probably not entirely wrong. Um, anyway, investors can't agree whether the recent run-up looks like a prelude to an eventual bust. This has been one of the the big topics of debate now for the last couple of months in particular has been this run-up in AI-related stocks. And there is some reasonable similarities between this run-up in AI-related stocks and what we saw back in the dot-com era. Now, unfortunately, there's a whole contingent of investors that were not of age to invest back in the late 90s. And, you know, you're, you're now talking 23 years ago, 24, actually, if you're talking about 1999. So there was, a, there was a whole group of people. There's actually a group of people investing today that weren't even born in 1999. That's, that's kind of really hard to believe. And when you're my age, you're going, that's just really hard to believe. But there are investors that are in this market that didn't make their first investment until after President Obama, Obama was elected to office. So they haven't seen a lot of the history that others have witnessed, especially as old folks. And so when you start talking about precedence and looking for market similarities, et cetera, and you start talking about the dot-com bus, a lot of people just don't have any concept of what that was. They, they, they didn't experience it. In fact, there's investors today that really didn't experience the financial crisis, Right, because they were only 13, 14 at the time, so they weren't making their first investment till after the financial crisis. So all they've seen in terms of a market dynamic is just a market that goes up because of liquidity. And this has been part and parcel of the reason why there's a, a rising contingent of investors that don't care about fundamentals. They don't care about the economic data. All they care about is what the Fed does. And that's really what has been what's driving the market now for the last couple of years in particular has been this focus on the Fed. I mean, just think about last year. All we did was one meeting to the next. What is CPI going to do? Because what's the Fed going to do? Nothing else really mattered. It just mattered whether or not CPI was going up or down or whether the Fed was hiking rates or not. And the whole thing was based on the premise of, oh, the Fed's going to pause. And if they pause, what was the important thing about them pausing? Was it really the fact that they just weren't going to hike rates anymore? No. The reason that everybody was so hung up on this Fed pause was because once they pause, that means what? That the next step is cutting rates and going back to QE. More liquidity. If we have more liquidity, the market goes up, right? Because, again, that's all that many investors today in the markets understand. That's all they've ever seen is just the Fed doing QE and liquidity. So that's completely normal to them. Fundamentals, pfft, who cares? Company makes earnings, makes money, who cares? Doesn't matter. Got liquidity or not, that's all that matters. Money's got to go somewhere, is the thesis. But for those of us old timers that do actually remember the dot-com era, there is a lot of similarities. Back in the late 1990s, it was the internet was going to change the world. It was going to increase productivity. It was going to create these jobs and it was going to create an unfathomable, uh, unfathomable increase in the earnings potential of companies of what can be done. I mean, think about it. 
probably even more so than AI, the internet created income opportunities, in theory, that never previously existed. Right? All of a sudden, I can be a very small little one-man shop in the midst of Duluth and have access to sell my products everywhere in the country, or world, actually. I didn't have to have stores all over the country. I just needed one. I needed. I could work out of my house as long as I could do stuff in my garage, box it up, and ship it out, right? That was the beauty of the Internet. All of a sudden, it gave small businesses the potential to compete just like every big company at the time. All they needed was an Internet site, a website. And so the Internet did change a lot of things. It it absolutely created opportunities that never existed before. So what happened? In 1999, stocks were just ramping up. And in fact, when we got to the fourth, third and fourth quarter of 1999, stocks were literally going parabolic. They were literally going straight up. And the belief was is this was this was only the beginning. In fact, in March of 2000, Jim Cramer came out with his list of 10 stocks that were going to, to, to change the next decade. Starting in April, it all fell apart. By the end of 2002, that list of 10 stocks was gone. Most of the companies have been acquired at a few cents or a few dollars of value. Some have gone bankrupt. Companies like World Crossing, etc. Had massive scandals in the old internet space, Enron, WorldCom, etc. So what happened? The internet did change the world. Right? It changed everything. Everything, you know, think about your life today. And let's just assume for a moment that, let, let, let's just talk to the younger crowd, right? So if you were born from 1995 to present, think about your, you know, you don't understand this as much as a Gen X does, but there was a time we didn't have the internet, right? You didn't have cell phones. You didn't have these things. So the internet changed all of that. Being able to pick up your phone and search something on the internet, that didn't exist when we were growing up, right? So, so, it, so the internet changed everything. So what happened? Why did everything fall apart? Well, it was because the expectation for these exponential earnings growth never matured. Yes, the internet changed the dynamic of the game. It, it put some businesses out of businesses. It created new businesses. But the expectation of exponential earnings growth never came to fruition. In other words, the valuations that companies were being priced at were so overvalued that the earnings could never grow fast enough to meet those expectations. Some of these companies that were expected to 
change the world as we know it failed entirely. Global Crossing is a good example. Lucent Technologies, others. There's other companies today that have never recovered back to their previous prices. JDS Uniphase, Cisco. If you, if you bought JDS Uniphase or Cisco Systems at the peak of the market, you're still not back to even. Back with JDS Uniphase, you know we're close. The valuations were so astronomically overvalued that the reality of what occurred and the potential of what could occur were so skewed that there was no opportunity for recovery. And this is the problem we have today with AI. There's a lot of the same arguments. We were talking about companies back then saying this, this is a great idea, but in order for this company to justify their valuation, they will have to own 100% of whatever sector they're in. And, of course, that was impossible. That was never going to happen. And so those companies had massive price declines or they actually ceased to exist at some point. Today, we have that same thing. In order for some of these AI companies to justify their current valuations at 30 and 40 times price to sales, they would literally have to own their entire space. The problem is, as is always the case, is that profitability and opportunity lead to competition. So you can't own the entire space. And then what happened then and what will happen now is that as competition breeds, profit margins have to decline as the only thing you have to compete on at that point is price. Who sells the cheaper competitive GPU? Be right back after the break. Daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. So, uh, so just talking a little bit about the AI boom and what, um, you know, kind of there's a lot of similarities between what's happening now and what happened back in the late 90s. Now, I'm not saying that this is all going to crash. And I'm not saying we're going to have another repeat of the dot-com era. But given the expectations, there is certainly the risk of that because – in a lot of cases, these valuations in these companies far exceed even the most optimistic outlook for earnings growth. But the problem is we have the same type of valuation problem throughout the entire market. Right? There's a lot of companies that are just old, stodgy, slow-growth businesses that trade at multiples far beyond 
their underlying value. You know, when you and, and we've talked about these before is that, you know, as a value investor, when you're thinking about, you know, owning a company and you start looking at uh, a company, say, like Procter & Gamble, right, it's a good, a good example. You know, here's a company that trades at over four times price to sales. They don't grow earnings fast enough every year to justify that valuation. So it's problematic. At some point, those valuations are going to have to align. But this has been a function of all this liquidity. Um, you know, another company like, say, uh, Coca-Cola, as an example. Great company. Nothing wrong with it. Companies trading at a price level higher than it was at the peak of the market in March of 2020. Currently trades at almost seven times price to sales. And this is a company, again, that, that grows earnings. Their, their sales growth over the last five years has been 3.5%. To grow earnings at two times price to sales, you need about a 20% sales growth every year, revenue growth. needs to be increasing by 20% a year just to maintain a price-to-sales ratio of two. And here's a company growing at three and a half. You know, and, and so this, this is the problem. You know, McDonald's is another good example. I mean, we just go down the list, right? Here's McDonald's. McDonald's. They sell hamburgers and french fries. Their sales growth over the last five years was 0.3%. 0.3%. Their sales over the last quarter was only 4% sales growth. The stock trades at nine times price to sales. It trades at a level where you normally find tech stocks that are growing revenue and sales at 20, 30, 40 times, 40% a year. High growth companies. You've got McDonald's trading at nine times price to sales. That will end in a very bad situation for McDonald's shareholders over the next decade. Either you have no growth in the stock and you collect a 2% dividend or you're going to have a price correction to reflect true valuation. This is the problem, though, that we've had with liquidity. A lot of these numbers don't matter as long as investors are chasing liquidity. And this is, and this is the environment that we've got ourselves into. But eventually, this becomes problematic. The company just simply can't grow sales fast enough to justify these valuations. Um, you know, this is where you start talking about companies that are trading at four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times sales. In order to justify that share price or that valuation, they have to return every cent of every dollar they make back to the investor, and that's kind of hard to do. you got to pay employees. But this is the detachment that we have right now between the markets and 
reality. Now, when does that change? Who knows, right? It's been 13 years now since the financial crisis, and it hasn't mattered because of liquidity. What's going to change? What's going to stop the liquidity flow from coming to the markets? I have no idea. So for right now, we just have to simply, you know, kind of hold on to the bull, so to speak, and just ride until the bell. When that bell comes, I have no idea. It's certainly not eight seconds. <laughs> it's going to be a while. But this is the environment we've got ourselves into. And as I was saying earlier, you know, there used to be a time that fundamentals mattered. Valuations mattered. And we invested based on things that mattered. And our holding period was six years not less than five months, which it is today. And when you have a holding period of less than five months, fundamentals really don't matter. They really don't. Because all you're trading is price momentum. And companies like Coke and McDonald's have a ton of price momentum behind them right now. Because that's where money's hiding, right? And that's a, that's a function as we've talked about before, of that passive indexing effect. A lot of investors don't own individual stocks. They own ETFs. So it's not really passive, right? Because they are, they're buying and selling these ETFs, but they're buying ETFs. And again, when I buy the ETF, if I buy a consumer staple ETF, because I think staples are going to be in a defensive position, for any type of market correction, or it might be safer, or I might be just buying uh, the staple sector for the dividend yields because I want income in my portfolio, then that money flows into the top 10 stocks of that ETF. Same thing for technology, same thing for cyclicals, same thing for industrials, materials, et cetera, right? Whatever the largest holdings in those ETFs are, are going to get the cash flows. And so this, this becomes the problem, is that these money flows are driving the movement in these stocks. So let's just take an example of XLP, right? XLP is the consumer staples sector of the S&P 500. Procter & Gamble this is number one holding. 14% of the ETF is Procter & Gamble, followed by Pepsi at 10, Coca-Cola at 10, Costco Wholesale at 9.5, Walmart, Mondelez International, Philip Morris, and Ultra Group. So we want exposure to staples in our portfolio because... We think that in a market risk-off rotation, that's where money will hide. So what are the top three stocks in that sector? Procter & Gamble, Pepsi, Cola, I'm sorry, top four stocks, Pepsi, Coca-Cola, Costco. Those four stocks make up 50%, almost 50% of the entire ETF. So for every dollar that goes into Staples, 50 cents of every dollar goes into those top four stocks. That's why we own Procter & Gamble, Coke, and Costco. Great companies. And because of passive index flows, 
if you want staple exposure, those are the stocks you buy. And the reason is if you buy the other stocks, they don't get the money flows. And again, in a market driven by liquidity, you have to buy the stocks that have the flow of money because that's, guess what? That's what makes the price go up. If you buy all the stocks that have 1% exposure to these ETFs, they don't get any money flows, so they don't perform as well. That's just the game that we've gotten ourselves into. It's no longer about fundamentals, right? If it was about fundamentals, McDonald's would not be trading at nine times price to sales with a sales growth over the last five years of 0.3%. This doesn't work. This is a stock that should be trading at probably a quarter of its current value to justify its valuation. But again, we're in a liquidity-driven market. Okay, coming up, top of the hour, we're going to take your phone calls. Here's the number, 281-558-5738. That's 281-558-5738. So feel free to uh, give us a call. And we'll take your question live on air, answer your question. We'll also take your questions on our YouTube channel. So if you're not on our YouTube channel just yet, hop over to YouTube, look up The Real Investment Show, and put your question or comment into the YouTube channel. We'll try to monitor everything as best we can and get to all your questions and answer them live coming up here in just a few minutes. Get by the website. Our latest newsletter is out on the website as well, realinvestmentadvice.com. Be right back. <laughs> 